How can a tiny... Turn that down a little bit. How can a tiny little nation like Israel become a blessing for the whole world? This morning we'll be looking at the last part of Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. How can a tiny nation like Israel become a nation that will rule the world? Well, we know from the rest of the Bible that Jesus is the one that brings that promise to pass, to fulfillment. It is through this Jewish descendant, this descendant of Israel, that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not because there's anything special about that nation other than that God chose that nation, but it's because of its descendant, Jesus. But even if we think of today, it's hard for us to see how the current nation of Israel will become an everlasting kingdom. They certainly don't look like a superpower at all right now. How could they possibly be what Daniel describes in a vision that he will be that Israel will be like a nation that grows up to the host of heaven and fills the whole earth? I mean, think about it. The promised Messiah has already come. And he died without establishing that kingdom on this earth. Where Israel was supposed to be at the center, and so we seem a very long way off from that prophecy. And if you have trouble seeing how that would happen, even considering the history and the, and the Scriptures that we know, imagine how it must have been for Daniel and his fellow Jews to consider that this is the promise, that Israel was going to be a great nation. God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David that He would make Israel into a great nation. But here Daniel is several centuries removed from that promise And Israel is teetering on the edge of extinction. How is God going to be able to come through on this promise? In order to explain what's going to happen to Daniel, God sends Christ Himself to bring a message. And He tells Daniel about two primary points in Daniel's future. First, the near future. That is, the the next 400 years of Israel for Daniel. And then the distant future, the end times. And this information serves both Daniel and us by encouraging us to trust God's plan and His timing. Because even though Israel's future is daunting, God will resolve the conflict that rages over the people of God. Let's look at Daniel chapter 11. We'll begin in verse 36 and read to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the God of gods, and he will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women, nor will he show regard for any other god. He will magnify himself above them all. But instead, he will honor a god of fortresses, a god whom his fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. He will give great honor to those who acknowledge Him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. 
at the end time, the king of the south will collide with him, and the king of the north will storm against him with chariots, with horsemen, and with many ships. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. He will also enter the beautiful land, and many countries will fall, but these will be rescued out of his hand, Edom, Moab, and the foremost of the sons of Ammon. Then he will stretch out his hand against other countries, and the land of Egypt will not escape, but he will gain control over the hidden treasures of the gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and Libyans and Ethiopians will follow at his heels. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. He will pitch the tents of his royal pavilion between the seas and the beautiful holy mountain, and he will come to his end, and no one will help him. The future of Israel is daunting. Last week we saw eight conflicts between the king of the south and the king of the north. We are transitioning now in verse 36 from Daniel's near future, the next 400 years for him, and Daniel's distant future, the end time, still future for us. Last week we saw this battle between the king of the north and the king of the south. That, that battle carried on for centuries. And Israel, and specifically Palestine, was right at the center of that conflict. Egypt would take control of Palestine through the reign of the Ptolemies, and then Syria would take it back through the reign of the Seleucids. And as these conflicts would go on, Jerusalem's temple would be pillaged and then eventually overtaken by the wicked Antiochus IV, Epiphanes. And this wicked king would stop all sacrifices, prohibit uh, all rites and Jewish rituals and days and observances of days by penalty of death. If they ate any clean food or did anything according to their Jewish religion. And in place of this God-honoring worship in the temple, this wicked Antiochus IV, this king of the north, set up an altar to Zeus in the Jerusalem temple. And the Lord called it in verse 31, the abomination of desolation. So this conflict that's talked about in verses 2 to 35 is the conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south, Syria and Egypt, and it goes back and forth for decades, centuries. As these kings change places, one dies, another takes his place, the conflict still goes on, and Jerusalem's at the middle, at the, middle the center. And they're kind of getting pulled back and forth. After this abomination of desolation, some Jews would betray their people and their God, and they would form an alliance with Syria in order to try to preserve their life. But the family known as the Maccabeans, the family of Maccabeus, they revolted against these tribes of the north, the Syrians, the king of the north. They revolted against them and killed the Jews who were opposing them, that were opposing other Jews, betraying the Jews. And then, amazingly, this little family in 164 B.C. recaptured the Jerusalem temple. And while the Maccabeans earned a small victory for the nation of Israel, the battle would continue to rage, and it continues to rage today over the nation of Israel and the land of Israel, and it will all the way until the end. So, 
that's kind of a summary of what we looked at last week in verses 2 to 35. That near future for Daniel, this conflict between the king of the north and the king of the south. This week we transition now to the end times. Now, if we're reading this entire this entire chapter, it's kind of hard to see the transition. So let me give you three reasons why I think that this is a transition from what I argued last week, Antiochus IV, the king of the north, who was wicked and who committed the abomination of desolation. It's a transition from him to his antitype, the person he symbolized, which was the Antichrist at the end. So now in verse 36, without naming him, we move almost subtly from Antiochus IV to the Antichrist. Notice the reason why I think that there are three. First, there's this transitional phrase in verse 35 that tells us that, that what Daniel's hearing from the Christ now is going to move from historical prophecy to end times or eschatological prophecy. Look at verse 35. Some of those who, who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge, and make them pure until the end time. Okay, that's talking about during the time of Antiochus IV because it is still to come at the appointed time. So what he's doing here is he's saying this is what's going to happen for Israel in its near future, but there's still some purging that needs to take place in the end time. It's still going to come at the appointed time. And then verse 36, Then the king will do as he pleases. And now it transitions to this Antichrist. Second reason why I think this is talking about the Antichrist is because the events of verses 36 to 45 that we just read this morning do not match up with what happened historically between Antiochus IV and Israel. None of these events that are talked about, the king of the north, king of the south, the battles that are going on, this other king that comes up from somewhere, they don't match what happened historically, so they must be still future. And then finally, turn over to chapter 12. We'll, we'll look at this more in detail next week. But notice how he continues this prophecy. He's talking about what's going to happen at the end. Notice verse 45 of chapter 11. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. We'll talk about who that is. And then chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise and there will be a time of distress. Think tribulation such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. And then notice this prophecy about the resurrection. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These or some to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So it's actually talking about two resurrections we'll talk about next week. But the resurrections of the dead do not happen until the end times. And so what we know is that Jesus almost moves seamlessly from Antiochus IV to the Antichrist and then to the time following the Antichrist's reign, which is the Millennial Kingdom, and before that, the resurrection of the believing saints of the Old Testament. And so, for those three reasons, I think that this passage here, verses 36 to 45, is talking about the Antichrist primarily. The focus of our study here will be on him and in many ways how he is like Antiochus IV. That's the why God first set up Antiochus IV. He wanted to show this is what it's going to be like in your near future. Learn from this 
and recognize that as I delivered you from that and spared you and caused you to avoid extinction, so I will deliver you at the end when it's even worse than Antiochus IV. That's what he's going to show him. Okay, so let's learn about this Antichrist, what we know from Daniel chapter 12 about him. First, his identity. His identity, verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases. The king here is talking about the Antichrist. And he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods. This Antichrist who will come to this earth and reign as the greatest king in its history is a self-centered blasphemer who does not care about God's purposes or God's will. He exalts himself above every god and says monstrous things monstrous things against the God of gods. That's our God. So this Antichrist will come. And he will be terrifying. He's not the small horn of the shaggy goat in chapter 8 that was prophesied. This is the little horn or the 11th horn from chapter 7. Remember the great and terrifying beast, the fourth beast that comes up and he destroys the beast that was before him. And out of his head grew ten horns. But then there was another horn, an eleventh horn, a little horn, that came up kind of subtly into power, but then takes over and no one can stop him until the prince of princes comes. Daniel here calls him the king in verse 36. I'm sorry, Christ calls the Antichrist the king here in verse 36. Daniel calls him the prince who is to come in chapter 9, verse 26. In that prophecy, he's called the prince who is to come. The Antichrist is called the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians 2.3. John, the apostle, calls him the Antichrist in 1 John 2.18. And he calls him the beast in Revelation 13.1. This is the great enemy of God that will come on the earth and will be empowered by Satan himself, will be possessed effectively by Satan himself and will be accompanied by the false prophet, the Antichrist, his identity. Secondly, his permission. Verse 36, his permission. The end of the verse says, and he will prosper until... He will prosper. That's terrifying that he will prosper, but there's a word that follows it. It says until. It's going to stop. It's going to come to an end. Until the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. Decreed by whom? Who decreed that the Antichrist would come? Who determined, who put it in his plan that the Antichrist was going to have a part in human history? Who determined that? It was God. The evilest acts that ever come to this world, including the crucifixion of our Lord and the persecution of saints, the end times is not something that God just tolerates or lets fester until He can do something about it. No, evil is actually a part of His decree, His plan. Joseph said it this way in Genesis 50-20 when his brothers thought that he was going to kill them after their father died. And they come and say, please, please, Joseph, don't kill us. And Joseph sees the situation rightly and says this, you meant it for evil, but what? 
but God meant it for good to bring about the salvation of many people. Talking about the rescue of many people. What Joseph saw and what we should see is that God plans the evil that will happen so that He can bring about good from it. So we need to recognize that 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 last part of verse 36 is not unimportant. The Antichrist doesn't just operate on his own desires, his own will. He operates according to the plan of God and his time is going to come to an end. His identity, his permission, thirdly, his corruption or his corruptness. Verses 37 to 39. Notice in verse 37 that he doesn't care about the God of his people. It says he, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. He will, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers. Now, it could be that this Antichrist is of Roman descent. That he has Roman ethnicity. He's Italian. But it also could be that he's 100% Jewish. Notice this phrase here in verse 37, the gods of his fathers. Look in the margin of your Bible and notice how else it can be translated. Instead of gods, it is God. Capital G, God of his fathers. And the reason for this difference in translation or possibility is that the Hebrew phrase is Elohim Abaton. Elohim Abaton. Any idea what Elohim means? Any of you kids for Christ? Kids know what Elohim means? What does it mean? Have you been listening? Okay, Elohim means God, right? So, Elohim is a way to say God. There's also a few cases in the Scriptures where Elohim actually means gods. It's a plural word. But generally speaking, it refers to God the Father. And the reason I think that it, that's actually a better translation than what our the New American Standard has, gods of His fathers, it should be God, capital G, of His fathers, is because the same phrase is used in other parts of the, New, the Old Testament, and every time it's used, that Hebrew phrase is used, it always refers to the true and living God. For example, that exact phrase is used in uh, the Kings, the book of the Kings, and it's used of Ammon, king of Judah, who forsook Yahweh, that is God, the God of his fathers. He was a wicked king because he forsook God, the God of his fathers. He forsook, he forsook the Lord. That's what Yahweh means. The Lord. The God of his fathers. The covenant Lord. And so that same phrase is used in other parts of the Old Testament and every time it's, it's translated the God of his fathers. And so what that tells us is that he will show no regard for the God of his fathers. What kind of ethnicity do you think the Antichrist might be? He's probably a Jew, isn't he? He doesn't care about the God of his fathers. Instead, he exalts himself as God. Now, when we think about this, we need to, we need to consider, like, wait a second, we, we had these four empires that were coming. We had the Babylonian, that's already happened. Medo-Persian, that's already happened. We had Greek, 
the Greek Empire. That's already happened with Alexander the Great. And then there was supposed to be the Roman Empire. We've had that. But then a renewed Roman Empire, according to those uh, prophecies that we saw in the first part of Daniel. So if it's a Roman Empire, how could we have a Jewish man who is the king of a Roman Empire? And I don't think that's a problem at all if you consider your own citizenship or if you go back in your ancestry to the person who was 100% of one kind of ethnicity. So for me, it would have been my grandma on my mom's side was 100% Greek and my grandpa was 100% Irish. Okay, So yet, they are what kind of citizens? They're American citizens and they have every right to run for president. They did. My grandpa's dead. He can't run for president anymore. But my grandma could run for president if she wanted to. She's a natural-born citizen of the United States. In the same way, he can very well be Jewish in ethnicity and yet be a Roman-born citizen and actually be the king of the Roman Empire, as he will be. So I think he's going to be a Jew. And this, this actually makes a lot of sense of various details throughout the Bible that talk about the end times that say that one of the first things that he's going to do is he's going to sign a treaty with the Jews to be able to get them to re-engage in worship in the Jerusalem temple. It makes a lot of sense if he's Jewish in ethnicity. He's going to want to see that. And for the first three and a half years, he plays the game and says, yes, this is great. Worship the true and living God. I'm with you. Until the midpoint of the tribulation. He turns on them. Takes out all of those sacrifices just like a... uh, uh, Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes does, and he sets up an idol made of himself that's basically possessed by the false prophet and made to to kill people who do not worship it. That's the abomination of desolation that happens at the end. It makes a lot of sense that he would be Jewish in ethnicity. Notice also his corruptness is seen in verse thirty seven in that he doesn't care for women. He has no concern for the God of his fathers, and he has no concern for women. Now, this may simply mean that he is not married. That very well could be the case. That he spends all of his time thinking about how to rule and so on. But it could also be that he's more debased than that in that he doesn't care for women. He doesn't have a sexual desire for women, but rather for men. As Romans 1 talks about, that God gave them over to the lusts of their mind and they all sorts of perversions, that God didn't make people like that, and yet He very well may be that way. He will also rule in power. His corruption is seen in His rule, verse 38. But instead, He will honor, instead of honoring the God of His fathers, the true and living God, He will honor a God of fortresses, a God whom His fathers did not know. He will honor him with gold, silver, costly stones, and treasures. He will take action against the strongest of fortresses with the help of a foreign god. This man will be a total materialist. He will idolize fortresses, which means that he's all about military might, maybe military machinery. Maybe he will be have some kind of advanced form of military equipment. But all of his money is spent not just to accumulate money, but to advance his military power because that's the God that he serves. The God of fortresses. No one can defeat me, he thinks. The point is that he'll be a military genius, which makes 
sense of also the fact that he rises to power so quickly and becomes a one-world leader. Not only will he be strong militarily, but he'll also have great diplomatic skills. In the last part of verse 39, he will give great honor to those who acknowledge him and will cause them to rule over the many and will parcel out land for a price. He will rule with diplomacy, saying, listen, if you are on my side, so some of these other lesser kings, as he starts to rise to power, if you, if you come and you be on my side, then I'm going to give you things. I'm going to give you greater power. You can rule with me instead of being opposed by me. So you can either try to beat me or you can join me. And it's in your best interest because of my military might, he will say, to come on my side. And many will do that. Finally, we see his quick rise to power in verses 40 to 45. His identity, his permission, his corruptness, and then his quick rise to power, verses 40 to 45. Now, what we need to to see here in verses 40 to 45, this is a little bit difficult to understand because of the pronouns in here. They don't say specifically who they're talking about. So we need to to think carefully. And what, what I'm going to suggest to you is that the Antichrist's rise to power is directly linked to the progress and decline of the kings of the north and the kings of the south. Or I should say, the king of the north and the king of the south. Okay, so what this is talking about is actually how the king of the north back, come back into play. Okay, we, we were talking about them before in historical past, our past, Daniel's future, but how these king, king of the north, king of the south are fighting against each other. Then there's a time where we talk about the Antichrist, verses 36 and 39, and now it goes back to talking about the king of the south and the king of the north. So what are we, what's going on here? And I would suggest it's ultimately about the rise of the Antichrist. The Antichrist um, has great military power, as I mentioned, and he's crafty when it comes to diplomacy, but he's going to be attacked by nations that threaten him. It's not going to be an easy job for him to just say, hey, I want to be king of the world. I'm going to rule the entire world in my empire. That doesn't just happen, does it? It happens through some significant battles, and he's going to have to really make some people fear him first. And so there are going to be some significant battles leading up to his reign. But here, let me notice, let me help you to see when this happens. Another reason why I think this is talking about the Antichrist. Verse 40, at the end time. Christ, pre-incarnate Christ is here visiting Daniel, giving him this vision. He's saying, at the end time, here's what's going to happen. The king of the south will collide with him, the Antichrist, and the king of the north will storm against him, the Antichrist, with chariots, with horsemen, with many ships. So now you have attacks from both sides. He's most likely set up somewhere in Israel, Jerusalem probably, as his throne. And you have the king of the north and the king of the south both saying, no, that's not your territory. That's our territory. We're, we're going to take it from you. So who is this king of the south? The king of the south really is only mentioned here, but then it seems to talk about the king of the north the rest of the time. The king, remember, during the conflict between the Ptolemies, that's the Egyptians, and the Seleucids, the Syrians, the nation that was represented by the king of the north was Syria. It was Syria. It kept going back and forth. You had Seleucid the first, and Antiochus the first, and Seleucid the second, Antiochus the second, and so on. 
Notice in the Old Testament, or, or I'm sorry, in the first part of this prophecy, verses 2 to 35, the king of the north came from Syria. We know that from history. We, we see how these 100 prophecies line up perfectly, as we saw last week, with actual history. And so that is Syria. And so we can think, well, in the end times, the king of the north is also going to be Syria. And that very well could be. But notice in verse 40, first we have the king of the south talked about. He will collide with him, the Antichrist. And then the king of the north will storm. Now the attention turns not to the Antichrist, but to the king of the north. The king of the north will storm against him. And then notice the last part of verse 40. And he will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. Now, as you read through the rest of this passage, you're going to notice this doesn't fit with the Antichrist. The he that's talked about here. So it has to be talking about the king of the north. That is, our focus of attention has been the king of the north, king of the south, and then for a brief time, the Antichrist. And now we're going to turn away from him for a time and we're going to look at the king of the north and how he has his, his mission to, to come and overtake the Antichrist. Notice what he does here at the end of verse 40. He will enter countries, overflow them, and pass through. So, his goal is to storm with chariots against the Antichrist, and he has to enter through countries to get to the Antichrist. So, if the Antichrist is in Jerusalem, Israel, and he has to pass through countries, and it can't be Syria. Okay, if you look at the map in the back of your Bible, you notice that Syria is a border country of Israel. And so if he's passing through countries, defeating them in order to get down to the Antichrist in Israel, then he must be another coming from another country other than Syria, maybe farther north. And so many scholars actually believe that it would be a country like Russia that would be led by this king, or that's described here as the king of the north. On his way to attack the Antichrist, this king of the north is going to have to pass through countries and very likely pass through Syria in order to get there. The battle against the Antichrist is seen in verse 41. Again, we've shifted our focus from the Antichrist to the king of the north, and he, the king of the north, will also enter the beautiful land. What do you think that refers to? Okay, Israel, Jerusalem, good. He will also enter... Jerusalem and many countries will fall, but here's some that that are saved from the king of the north's great power. And by the way, this is consistent with what's talked about in Ezekiel 38 and 39. You're going to write those chapters down. It'll be helpful just to read the battle between Gog and Magog. And it's the king of the north who has great power and comes through and, and defeats many countries. But he does save a few, Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites. He wins decisive battles. And he even wins, and Ezekiel 38 and 39 tells us that he even wins against the Antichrist. And after he does, he thinks the Antichrist is gone because he actually kills the Antichrist. And he moves on, and he starts heading farther south. He moves right on through, makes his way down to Egypt, according to verse 42. Notice the battle against Egypt. Then he will stretch the king of the north will stretch out his hand against other countries 
and the, and the land of Egypt will not escape. Amazing. Verse 43, But He will gain control over the hidden treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. All these great treasures that have been stored up from Egypt over all the ages. By the way, where do all those treasures come from? Joseph's great rule. Remember when he saved them from famine and everybody had to come and pay taxes to them and, and, and pay for all their grain and so on? That was God who brought all that great treasure to Egypt. Much of it still resides there today. But this king of the north will come down and destroy Egypt and take all of its hidden treasures. And he will also destroy some other North African countries including Libya and Ethiopia according to verse 43. So as he's kind of doing this little conquest, making his way down to all these countries, gain more and more power, the king of the north is going to hear some rumors. Notice verse 44. But rumors from the east and from the north will disturb him, and he will go forth with great wrath to destroy and annihilate many. Remember what I said about what he does to the Antichrist? He actually wins, and he kills the Antichrist at the midpoint of the tribulation. Then he's going to hear some rumors. Anybody know what those rumors are? What happens to the Antichrist? comes back to life a few days later. And the king of the north thinks, no way. That cannot be happening. So those rumors will disturb him. And so enraged, he will return to Palestine to see if this is really true. And he's going to face him again. He finds out it is true. And he kills many on the way in battle. Verse 44. And he establishes his throne in verse 45 between Jerusalem and the seas, probably the Mediterranean Sea, between Holy Mountain and the seas, thinking that he won again. He sets up his throne in western Israel, the king of the north, and yet his nation is going to be overpowered in battle in verse 45. And the Antichrist or the false prophet will kill the king of the north in a miraculous way by sending down fire from heaven. And the end of the king of the north will come quickly. Look at the end of verse 45. Yet he, the king of the north, will come to his end and no one will help him. So he has this great battle. It's been going on from the time of Daniel all the way to the end times. The, the tug of war that's going back and forth and how does it all end? The king of the north is killed, but we don't hear anything about the Antichrist dying here, do we? This is how Christ leaves it with Daniel. And what it tells us is that the Antichrist's rise to power is going to be significant and fearful and daunting for the people of Israel. For Daniel, it's hard to conceive. There's no explicit statement about the demise of the Antichrist in this prophecy. It sounds like he lives forever. But actually, the Lord does have more to say about the demise of the Antichrist because he's not done with this prophecy. It continues on into chapter 12. And we'll look at that next week. But what we need to know this morning is that there is a great battle that has raged over the nation of Israel Last week we saw the tug of war between Egypt and Syria that put Israel at its center. 
center of its conflict. This week we see that Israel will be at the center of a conflict that goes on during that seven-year period of tribulation that is to come. And after reading chapter 11, we're left with a pretty bad taste in our mouths. But, but imagine Daniel. You wonder why he gets sick from some of these prophecies. The news of Israel's future seems very bleak. And this promised kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, which on which He will reign forever and ever, seems very unlikely after reading chapter 11. So why is there no great resolve? Why do we not know the end? We must not forget that we have already what we've already seen in the book of Daniel. Let's quickly take a survey back through the book. And let me show you how the book of Daniel reminds us of two important truths. First, and I'm not going to take it as specific passages on this one, but turn back to chapter 4. The first one that we should recognize that's in this book is that God is with His people in all their trouble. God is with His people in all their trouble. Remember Daniel with King Nebuchadnezzar? Eats king's meat. Daniel says, no, I'm not going to do it because I need to obey my God. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He was not abandoned. They were not abandoned, were they? But the Lord was with them in the fiery furnace. How about Daniel in the lion's den? Did God abandon him? By no means. But he was actually visited by the Lord Himself. The exiles of Israel, the nation of Israel during the tug of war between Egypt and Syria, and Israel at the end time, it's all pointing us to the fact that God will not abandon His people. He's not going to abandon them. We learn that in Daniel's prophecy. But we also learn, and this speaks to what's going to happen at the end times, that God is the true sovereign. This book is about disputed sovereignty. Notice in chapter 4, verse 29, King Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the sovereign. Uh, That's not the verse I'm looking for. Uh, Verse 30. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, reflected and said, he looks out on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon and says, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? King Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's the great sovereign, the great king over all the world. In chapter 5, verse 2, Belshazzar thinks he's the great king. He has this huge feast, invites everybody and even defiles the vessels from the Jerusalem temple because he thinks, hey, no one can stop me. In chapter 11, the king of the south and the king of the north think that they're the great king. The little horn thinks he's the great king, the Antichrist. But none of them acknowledge, except Nebuchadnezzar later on in life, none of them acknowledge that all of their authority is derived authority is an authority that is given by God and that their authority is only temporary. All of their kingdoms come to an end, don't they? They all do. You remember Psalm 2? The kings of the earth take their stand against God, but God is in the heavens and He laughs. He scoffs at them because He has installed His Son as King. And this King will reign forever and ever. All these kings throughout the history of the world think that they're the great king. 
especially the empire, the king of the empires. But there's only one king who will have an unending kingdom. Turn to chapter 7, verse 13. Here's a vision that Daniel receives. He says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days, God Himself, and was presented before Him. And to Him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Only one king will reign over the entire earth and will have a kingdom that will never end. You see, God is working behind the scenes to accomplish His purposes. and His power and His promise guarantee that He will win and that His Son will win. And so while it may look like the world is in utter chaos for Israel and for us, God is in control of everything. He's the one who causes the rise and the fall of every single king. And He causes the rise and the final culmination of history in the kingdom with Christ reigning as King over all the world. God causes all that to happen. So we need to trust in the God of history even when life doesn't seem to have meaning. Listen to one commentator called uh, Daniel Wallace. He says, The message of Daniel 11 is clear. History, as it moves towards its end, can be seen to have no clear meaning. Have you ever thought that? What, what are we doing here? What's the meaning of all this? He goes on to say, Nor will it ever be seen to have any pers- purpose or meaning until we are able to look back on it from a standpoint of what was happened, what has happened, and its end and its climax. And Daniel, in chapter 11, helps us to see the nonsense of trying to have faith without hope in what God is going to accomplish in the end times. It is foolish to try to have faith without recognizing that God is in control of all those things that are going to happen at the end. God is in control of the rise and the fall of the Antichrist. The rise and the fall of the King of the North. And that's because God is the true King. And all those other kings are only temporary. And even the authority that they have is only temporal and derived from God. And so like Isaiah's prophecy teaches us, the nations, in God's view, are like dust on the scales. Father, we are uh, so thankful that You are in control. It is troubling to read through this prophecy and see the seeming great and limitless power of this Antichrist who will come and reign on this earth. And and it is troubling because of all the, the death and the persecution that will happen on believers. And Lord, so we ask with the saints of old and with the saints of the future, how long? How much longer, Lord, before You quell the injustice that's on the earth and bring about true justice and peace? Goodwill, goodwill to all men. How much longer will it be, Lord? 
we pray that you would send Christ quickly because we, we know that the only way that there can be peace in Jerusalem, peace in the Middle East, peace all over the world is when Christ comes to reign. And when he removes the presence of sin from those who have glorified bodies. And he rules with a rod of iron here on this earth. And he reverses the curse that's on the earth from that came as a result of our sin. And so we pray that you would send him. Lord, until that time, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to persevere. Help us to recognize that you are in control and that you never will abandon us. We are prone to think that that at times you don't care or that at times you're far away or busy. Lord, forgive us for that and help us to see rightly your care and concern and your regular and clear presence in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.